Thank you for listening to Enabled this week. I have information for you about research projects that are going all over the world, as reported in a journal called Science Daily. I'll start out today with a spooky story with the title of I Ain't Afraid of No Ghosts, People with Mind Blindness Not So Easily Spooked. The link between mental imagery and emotions may be closer than we thought. The date this was published in Science Daily was March 10, 2021. The source was the University of New South Wales in Australia. People with aphantasia, I better spell that for you right from the start, A-P-H-A-N-T-A-S-I-A. People with aphantasia, that is the Inability to visualize mental images are harder to spook with scary stories. This is according to a new uh, University of New South Wales, Australia, located in Sydney, what their study shows. The study published today, this was in March, in a journal called Proceedings of the Royal Society, tested how aphantastic people reacted to reading distressing scenarios, like being chased by a shark, falling off a cliff, or being in a plane that's about to crash. The researchers were able to physically measure each participant's fear response by monitoring changing skin conductivity levels. In other words, how much the story made a person sweat. This type of test is commonly used in psychology research to measure the body's physical expression of emotion. According to the findings, scary stories lost their fear factor when the readers could not visually imagine the scene, suggesting imagery may have a closer link to emotions than scientists previously thought. Here's a quote. We found the strongest evidence yet that mental imagery plays a key role in linking thoughts and emotions. This is from Professor Joel Pearson, who is the senior author of this paper. He is director of the UNSW, that's the University of New South Wales, a, a program called Science's Future Minds Lab. He continues, in all of our research to date, this is by far the biggest difference we've found between people with aphantasia and the general population. To test the role of visual imagery in fear, researchers guided 46 study participants. 22 of them had aphantasia and 24 had imagery. They added these 46 study participants to a blackened room before attaching several electrodes to their skin. Skin is known to become a better conductor of electricity when a person feels strong emotions like fear. The scientists then left the room and turned the lights off, leaving the participants alone as a story started to appear on the screen in front of them. At first, the story started innocuously. For example, you are at a beach in the water, or something like, you're on a plane sitting by the window. But as the stories continued, the suspense slowly built, whether it was a dark flash in the distant waves, and people on the beach were pointing, or the cabin lights dimming as the plane starts to shake. Next we have a quote, skin conductivity levels quickly started to grow for people who were able to visualize the written stories, says Professor Pearson. The more the stories went on, the more their skin reacted. 
But for people with aphantasia, the skin conductivity levels pretty much flatlined. To check that differences in fear thresholds didn't cause the response, the experiment was repeated using a, a series of scary images instead of the text, like a photo of a cadaver or a snake bearing its fangs. But this time, the pictures made the skin crawl equally in both groups of people. Here's a quote. These two sets of results suggest that aphantasia isn't linked to reduced emotion in general, but is specific to participants reading scary stories, says Professor Pearson. The emotional fear response was present when participants actually saw the scary material play out in front of them. The findings suggest that imagery is an emotional thought amplifier. We can think all kinds of things, but without imagery, the thoughts aren't going to have that emotional boom. The next section is called Living with Aphantasia. Aphantasia affects 2 to 5% of the population, but there is still very little known about the condition. A UNSW study published last year found that aphantasia is linked to a widespread pattern of changes to other cognitive processes like remembering, dreaming, and imagining. But while most previous aphantasia research focused on behavioral studies, this study used an objective measure of skin conductance. Here's a quote. This evidence further supports aphantasia as a unique, verifiable phenomenon, says study co-author Dr. Rebecca Keough, a postdoctoral fellow formerly of UNSW and now based at Macquarie University, also in Australia. This work may provide a potential new objective tool which could be used to help to confirm and diagnose aphantasia in the future. The idea for this experiment came after the research team noticed a recurring sentiment on aphantasia discussion boards that many people with the condition did not enjoy reading fiction. While the findings suggest that reading may not be as emotionally impactful for people with aphantasia, Professor Pearson says it's important to note that the findings are based on averages and not everyone with aphantasia will have the same reading experience. The study was also focused on fear and other emotional responses to fiction that could be different. Here's a quote. Aphantasia comes in different shapes and sizes, he says. He continues, some people have no visual imagery, while other people have no imagery in one or all of their other senses. Some people dream, while others don't. So don't be concerned if you have aphantasia and don't fit this mold. There are all kinds of variations to aphantasia that we're only just discovering. Next, Professor Pearson and his team at the Future Minds Lab plan to investigate how disorders like anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder might be experienced differently by people with aphantasia. He ends the article with a quote, aphantasia is neural diversity, says Professor Pearson. It's an amazing example of how different our brain and minds can be. Once again, the story source for this was the University of New South Wales. The original article was written by Sherry Landau. This is about aphantasia, or also called mind blindness. Now, the next article from Science Daily is something you've uh, probably heard before, 
but exercise can slow or prevent vision loss, study finds. This was published in July of 2020 from the University of Virginia Health System. This is in Richmond, Virginia. Exercise can slow or prevent the development of macular degeneration and may benefit other common causes of vision loss, such as glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, new research suggests. The new study from the University of Virginia School of Medicine in Richmond found that exercise reduced the harmful overgrowth of blood vessels in the eyes of laboratory mice by up to 45%. This tangle of blood vessels is a key contributor to macular degeneration and several other eye diseases. The study represents the first experimental evidence showing that exercise can reduce the severity of macular degeneration, a leading cause of vision loss, the scientists report. Ten million Americans are estimated to have this condition. Here's a quote. There has long been a question about whether maintaining a healthy lifestyle can delay or prevent the development of macular degeneration. The way that question has historically been answered has been by taking surveys of people, asking them what they are eating and how much exercise they are doing, said researcher Bradley Gelfand. He's a PhD from the UVA Center for Advanced Vision Science. Dr. Gelfand continues, that is basically the most sophisticated study that's been done. The problem with that is that people are notoriously bad self-reporters, and that can lead to conclusions that may or may not be true. This study offers hard evidence from the lab for very first time. The section is called The Benefits of Exercise. Enticingly, the research found that the bar for receiving the benefits from exercise was relatively low. More exercise did not mean more benefit. Here's a quote. Mice are kind of like people in that they will do a spectrum of exercise. Hey, as long as they had a wheel and they ran on it, there was a benefit, Dr. Gelfan said. He continues, the benefit that they obtained is saturated at low levels of exercise. An initial test comparing mice that voluntarily exercised versus those that did, did not found that exercise reduced the blood vessel overgrowth by 45%. A second test to confirm the findings found a reduction of 32%. The scientists aren't certain exactly how exercise is preventing the blood vessel overgrowth. There could be a variety of factors at play, they say, including increased blood flow to the eyes. Dr. Gelfand of the UVA's Department of Ophthalmology and the Department of Biomedical Engineering noted that the onset of vision loss is often associated with a decrease in exercise. Here's a quote. It's fairly well known that as people's eyes and vision deteriorate, their tendency to engage in physical activity also goes down, he said. It can be a challenging thing to study in older people. How much of that is one causing the other. The researchers already have submitted grant proposals in hopes of obtaining funding to pursue their findings further. Here's a quote. The next step is to look at how and why this happens and to see if we can develop a pill 
or a method that will give you the benefits of exercise without having to exercise, Dr. Gelfand said. He continues, we are talking about a fairly elderly population of people with macular degeneration, many of whom may not be capable of conducting the type of exercise regimen that may be required to see some kind of benefit. He uh, urged people to consult their doctors before beginning any aggressive exercise program. Now, you should know Dr. Gelfand is a self-described couch potato. He disclosed a secret motivation for the research by saying, one reason I wanted to do this study was uh, sort of selfish. I was hoping to find some reason not to exercise, he joked. But it turned out exercise is really good for you. Well, right after I finish this, I think I'll go for a walk. But now we've got to switch to a different article, this one a bit more uh, scientific, let's say. Restoring a rudimentary form of vision in the blind. Using a brain implant to make the blind see again. This was published in December of 2020. The source is the Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience, and they abbreviate that the NIN. Restoration of vision in blind people through a brain implant is on the verge of becoming reality. Recent discoveries at the Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience, the NIN, show that newly developed high-resolution implants in the visual cortex make it possible to recognize artificially induced shapes and percepts. The findings were published in Science Journal on the 3rd of December, 2020. The idea of stimulating the brain via an implant to generate artificial visual percepts is not new and dates back to the 1970s. However, existing systems are only able to generate a small number of artificial pixels at one time. At the NIN, that's the uh, Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience, researchers from a team led by Peter Rolfsma are now using new implant production and implantation technologies, cutting-edge materials, microchip fabrication, and microelectronics to develop devices that are more stable and durable than previous implants. The first results are very promising. The next section is called Electrical Stimulation. When electrical stimulation is delivered to the brain via an implanted electrode, it generates the percept of a dot of light at a particular location in visual space. This is known as a phosphine. The team developed a high-resolution implant consisting of 1,024 electrodes, and they implanted them in the visual cortex of two sighted monkeys. Their goal was to create interpretable images by delivering electrical stimulation simultaneously via multiple electrodes to generate a percept that was composed of multiple phosphenes. Here's a quote. The number of electrodes that we have implanted in the visual cortex and the number of artificial pixels that we can generate to produce high-resolution artificial images is unprecedented, said Rolsma. Next section is recognizing dots, lines, and letters. The monkeys first had to perform a simple behavioral task in which they made eye movements to report the location of a phosphine that was elicited during electrical stimulation via an individual electrode. 
They were also tested on more complex tasks, such as a direction of motion task, in which micro-stimulation was delivered on a sequence of electrodes, and also a letter discrimination task, in which micro-stimulation was delivered on 8 to 15 electrodes simultaneously, creating a percept in the form of a letter. The monkeys successfully recognized shapes and percepts, including lines, moving dots, and letters, using their artificial vision. Here's a quote. Our implant interfaces directly with the brain, bypassing prior stages of visual processing via the eye or the optic nerve. Hence, in the future, such technology could be used for the restoration of low vision in people who are blind, who have suffered injury or degeneration of the retina, the eye, or the optic nerve, but whose visual cortex remains intact. This is explained by Dr. Shing, postdoctoral researcher in Rolsma's team. This research lays the foundations for a neuroprosthetic device that could allow profoundly blind people to regain functional vision and to recognize objects, navigate in unfamiliar surroundings, and interact more easily in social settings, significantly improving their independence and quality of life. And once again, the materials for this article were provided by the Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience. I would like to remind you at this point that all the information for today's program comes from an online journal called Science Daily. Its website is www.sciencedaily.com. It is a favorite of mine, especially the section called Science News, which is what I'm re uh, reading from today for you. So the next article, Research Breakthrough for a Leading Cause of Blindness. The date for this was February 7th. The source is the Queen Mary University from London. First of all, remember the combination FHR4, FHR4. Researchers have identified a new protein linked to age-related macular degeneration that could offer new hope for the diagnosis and treatment of the disease. This disease affects over 1.5 million people in the UK alone, they said. And remember, this is from University of uh, Queen Mary in London. The research team made up of scientists from Queen Mary University of London, also from the University of Manchester, from Cardiff University, and Radboud University in Nijmegen, Netherlands, found significantly higher levels of a protein called Factor H-related protein 4, FHR4. Factor H-related protein 4. They found this protein in the blood of AMD patients. Further investigation using eye tissue donated for medical research showed the presence of the FHR4 protein within the macula, the specific region of the eye affected by this disease. The results of this study open up new routes for early diagnosis by measuring the FHR4 levels in the blood and suggests therapies targeting this protein could provide promising future treatment options for this disease. FHR4 regulates the complement system, which is part of the immune system, which plays a critical role in inflammation and the body's defense against infection. Previous studies had linked 
the complement system to AMD, showing that genetically inherited faults in key complement proteins are strong risk factors for the condition. In this study, the researchers used a genetic technique known as a genome-wide association study to identify specific changes in the genome related to the increased levels of FHR4 found in AMD patients. The identified genetic changes also overlapped with genetic variants first found to increase the risk of AMD over 20 years ago. Together, the findings suggest that inherited genetic changes can lead to higher blood FHR4 levels, which results in uncontrolled activation of the complement system within the eye. Blood levels of FHR4 were measured in 484 patients in 522 age-matched control samples using two independent established collections of AMD patient data. The studies they used were as follows. The Cambridge AMD study led by Professor Anthony Moore from the Moorefields Eye Hospital and the UCL Institute of Ophthalmology, which is now located at the University of California in San Francisco, and also Professor John Yates from Cambridge University and the European Genetic Database, which they abbreviate UGENDA, the European Genetic Database led by Professor Annika Den Hollander and Professor Carl Honig from Radboud University Medical Center. There are two main types of AMD, the wet AMD and the dry AMD. While some treatment options exist for wet AMD, there is currently no available treatment for dry AMD. Dr. Valentina Cipriani, who jointly led the statistical data analysis with Dr. Laura Dr. Laura Lorez Mata from the Radboud University Medical Center, and she is an expert in ophthalmic statistical genetics. She said, this is Dr. Laura Lorez Mata said, by unveiling FHR4 as a key molecular player for AMD, our study was able to dissect further the genetic disease predisposition at the factor H region. This is one of the most established genetic associations in the field of complex genetics. We hope our findings will accelerate interest from the wider research community in the involvement of the complement system in AMD with the ultimate goal of uncovering the role of the whole, what they call the complementome in the disease. Professor Paul Bishop, an ophthalmologist and AMD expert at the University of Manchester said, the combined protein and genetic findings provide compelling evidence that FHR4 is a critical controller of that part of the immune system which affects the eye. Apart from improving understanding of how AMD is caused, this work also provides a way of predicting risk for the disease by simply measuring blood levels of FHR4 and also it provides a new route to treatment by reducing the blood levels of FHR4 to restore immune system function in the eyes. And this was a quote to end the article by Dr. Paul Bishop from the University of Manchester in England. 
And once again, the material for this article was provided to the online journal called Science Daily by the Queen Mary University of London. Now we switch to the next article about colorblindness. The headline reads, Colorblindness Correcting Contact Lenses. This was published on March 3rd of this year by the American Chemical Society. Imagine seeing the world in muted shades. Gray sky, gray grass. Some people with colorblindness see everything this way, though most can't see specific colors. Tinted glasses can help, but they can't be used to correct blurry vision. And dyed contact lenses currently in development for the condition are potentially harmful and unstable. Now, in a journal called the ACS Nano, and that's again the American Chemical Society publication, ACS Nano, the researchers report infusing contact lenses with gold nanoparticles to create a safer way to see colors. Some daily activities, such as determining if a banana is ripe or selecting matching clothes, or even stopping at a red light can be difficult for those with colorblindness. Most people with this genetic disorder have trouble discriminating red and green shades, and red tinted glasses can make those colors more prominent and easier to see. However, these lenses are bulky, and the lens material cannot be made to fix vision problems. Thus, researchers have shifted to the development of specially tinted contact lenses. Although the prototype hot pink dyed lenses improved red-green color perception in clinical trials, they leached the dye, which led to concerns about their safety. Gold nanocomposites are non-toxic and have been used for centuries to produce what they call cranberry glass because of the way they scatter light. Now we're talking about gold nanocomposites, little gold specks. So the scientists wanted to see whether incorporating gold nanoparticles into contact lens material instead of the dye could improve red-green contrast safely and effectively. To make the contact lenses, the researchers evenly mixed gold nanoparticles into a hydrogel polymer, producing rose-tinted gels that filtered light within a certain range of wavelengths where the red and green overlap. The most effective contact lenses were those with 40 nanometer wide gold nanoparticles because in tests, these particles did not clump together or filter more color than necessary. In addition, these lenses had water retention properties similar to those of commercial ones and were not toxic to cells growing in petri dishes in the lab. And finally, the researchers directly compared their new material to two commercially available pairs of tinted glasses and their previously developed hot pink dyed contact lenses. The gold nanocomposite lenses were more selective in the wavelengths they blocked than the glasses. The new lenses matched the wavelength range of the dyed contact lenses, suggesting the gold nanocomposite ones would be suitable for people with red-green color issues without the potential safety concerns. 
The researchers say that the next step is to conduct clinical trials with human patients to assess their comfort. And once again, this story came from the American Chemical Society. Well, to summarize this program of research news from Science Daily, I can say that I hope you've learned about aphantasia or mental blindness, the benefits of exercise, brain implants, an AMD protein called FHR4, and even about contact lenses with little gold specks in them. Well, to end the program today, I have a quote for you to think about. Remember the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Most people agree that this came from The Wizard of Id, a classic daily newspaper comic strip created by Brant Parker and Johnny Hart. They did this in 1964 with an attempt to satirize modern American culture and politics. That was back in 1964. Profound thoughts from a comic strip. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great week.